Well, good morning, friends. I want to add my own uh, Father's Day greeting to that which Mary shared with you earlier in the service to the dads and the, the granddads and the great granddads out there. And, you know, because I have the privilege of this position and moment right now, I want to say a special happy Father's Day to my own father-in-law, Ken Upchurch, in Montgomery, Alabama, watching this service as you and Ann do every Sunday morning. Happy Father's Day, Ken. I hope this is a great day for you in every respect. Wish I was there with you, but kind of need to be here today. You know, about a century ago, Ernest Hemingway uh, wrote a short story about a young man in Madrid named Paco. And in the story, Paco runs away from home. We don't know why. Uh, Hemingway didn't get into the story in that regard, but we learn that this young guy ran away from home and whether he had said something or done something that he felt ashamed about and ran away from home or, or his dad kicked him out of the house because of something that he had said or done or hadn't done, or maybe Paco just had the dream of being a bullfighter in Madrid. And so he ran away from home and was, was lost somewhere on the streets of Madrid. If you could find a mentor who could guide you into bullfighting, you had a pretty good chance of getting a job in that regard. But without that, living on the streets of Madrid or, or trying to be a bullfighter was guaranteed death. The dad of Paco was despondent. And he knew there was no way he could prowl the streets of Madrid looking for his son. And he didn't know what to do, but he knew he had to do something. So finally, in an act of desperation, he took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad said this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. What the dad didn't consider was the reality that Paco was a pretty familiar name. And when he showed up at the Hotel Montana a few days later at noon on Tuesday, there were 800 young men, all named Paco, hoping to find and be reconciled with their father. There's a familiar story in the New Testament. Jesus tells a parable that you and I know as the parable of the prodigal son. It's a story about a dad, and not just one son, but really two sons. So together, let's listen to this story. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father give me the share of the property that'll belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him, a Jewish kid, to his feed, fields to feed pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cut him off, said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one. Put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, well, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. The father said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Amen. May the same Holy Spirit who inspired the writing and preservation of these words inspire them for our understanding as well. I said earlier that this is a familiar story. I think it is for we who have been around the church for any period of time or sought to follow Jesus. My concern is that familiarity, as they say, breeds contempt. And that contempt manifests itself when we start to get into this story and I think our minds kind of go on autopilot. I think when we understand this story in its context, it begins to be seen in a different light. And context really is important. Let me give you a, a silly illustration. Early in my marriage, Liv and I have been married maybe six weeks. We're living in Augusta, Georgia in this little apartment and in the middle of the night, Lib having moved from Dallas home to Montgomery and, and from Montgomery to Augusta to be married, she was hit because Augusta is in this little bowl-like piece of geography. She was hit with allergies like nobody's business. She wasn't working yet and in the middle of the night, those allergies, it just closed her head up. So out of an act of compassion so that she wouldn't bother me because she knew I had to get up and go to work the next morning, she was getting up and, and walking out of our bedroom, middle of the night, and as she's making her way out, she sneezes. Now, that particular time, she sneezed like this. I mumbled something as she made her way out. The next morning at breakfast, she had this downcast look and, and I could tell something was wrong. And, and I said, what's the matter? She said, nothing. All men know that when your wife says nothing's wrong, there's something really wrong. And I kept digging and she said, last night you said you were gonna blow my brains out. 
I was stunned. I was shocked. I would never say that. I hadn't said that. There was no way I'd say that. I tried to affirm her and, and let her know I didn't say that, but it nagged at me all day long. And finally, about two in the afternoon, I realized what had happened, what I had said, and what she misheard. When she sneezed, I mumbled, one of these days you're going to blow your brains out your ears because I was concerned about all that pressure building up in her sinuses. Picked up the phone and called her and explained what was going on. The context of my comment suddenly put the comment in a completely different light. The context of this story that you and I know so well helps us see it in a new light. Listen to the context in Luke 15 verses one through two. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the context of this story. Jesus seeing who he's hanging out with and how the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the scribes are responding, begins to tell them some stories. First, he tells them about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and, and lost one and went and looked until he found that lost sheep. Then he tells a story about a woman who had 10 coins and lost one. She tore her house apart until she found it. In both cases, once the one who had lost something had found what was lost, there was great rejoicing and celebration. So Jesus tells a story about something being lost and found and the joy that the one who had lost something finds in it. Then he tells this story, the parable of the prodigal. And most of us hear this as a parable of the prodigal son, but look at what the definition of prodigal really means. This is straight from dictionary.com. It's an adjective. It means wastefully or recklessly extravagant. It means giving or yielding profusely, very generous, lavish, lavishly abundant, profuse. You know, you and I hear prodigal and we think decadent, dissolute, living, rebellious kid. But when you realize the meaning of the word prodigal, you run, understand that it really doesn't apply to the son as much it does to the father. So in this story, there is a dad who has two sons. One of them strayed and one of them stayed. The social implications in that culture of what happened when the son who strayed went to his dad and said, give me what I'm due. He really means give me what I am due when you die. The dad didn't have to do this, but he divided his property, probably liquidated some assets, or went to the courts and, and separated property and, and deeded something to his son, but, but basically recognized and everyone around the community would recognize that the son was treating the father as if he was dead. The son then goes off somewhere and just blows through his resources, hits dead bottom as, as far as anyone could possibly go. Remember that the Jewish law says you have nothing to do with pigs and, and suddenly here is this kid feeding pigs. 
The Talmud, which is a commentary on the Jewish law, says, cursed is he who feeds swine. This kid is as low as a snake's belly in a wagon rut. He can't get any lower. And he finally recognizes, has a, a come to awareness moment, realizes that things are a lot better back home than he thought they were. So he comes up with this speech that he's gonna give his dad and he begins to make his way home. And the story says that while he was still a long ways off, the father saw him and the dad comes running. Here's a picture of what it might have looked like when the dad saw his son and took off running. Kenneth Bailey, who is a New Testament scholar and lived in the Middle East for many, many years, says there is no way that a dad in that culture at that point in history would do this because really to be able to run, that dad's got to hike up his robe a little bit to be able to move his legs the way he needs to. And, and Jewish men of that culture in that time did not show their legs. No one of respect ran. So the dad just throws all caution to the wind and goes running to meet his son. He probably recognizes the way his son was walking as he comes over a hilltop. Remember Mary's description of the image of the father welcoming the son and embracing him? That's what happens. Notice that the one who is lost, the dad in this story and the, the shepherd and the woman in the other two stories, they take initiative. They don't just sit back and wait to see what's happened. The dad goes running to the son. You see, the story is not about the son. The story is really about the dad. It's about the prodigal dad, the one who gives profusely, who lavishes upon us, who is very, very generous. Too many of us, if, if we're honest with ourselves, have this image of God that is filtered through our perception of our earthly father. The relationship that we had with dad here on earth affects and impacts and in many ways shapes the relationship that we have with our heavenly father. But do you remember how Barry described Jesus in praying earlier in his prayer and, and how Jesus in the New Testament teaches us to call God Abba, which, the, which is the Hebrew word that means daddy or papa. Whatever the term of endearment that your children have for you, your grandchildren have for you, that you had for your dad, for your granddad, that's the term of endearment that we can use when we address God. So many of us have felt this sense of estrangement for, for God and, and we feel like we've got to claw our way back to him. The reality is that we need desperately to get back into relationship with God. Blaise Pascal, the, the great theologian and philosopher, put it this way, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God. Dad, your heavenly dad, the prodigal, generous, profuse, lavishing love dad longs 
to surround you with his love and to fill that God-shaped vacuum with himself. My wife told me a story one time. Lib said that her brother, Ken, who's about 18 months older than she, was home from college. And Lib may have been in college at this time. I'm not sure. But it was summertime, and they were all home in Montgomery, and they were sitting around the table eating dinner. And Lib's mom, Anne, asked Ken, her son, uh, about one of his friends. Let's say his name was John. Uh, Ken, where's John? I hadn't seen anything about out of John, hadn't heard anything about John in a while. What, what's going on with John? And, and Ken said, oh, mama, John, John's run off to California. He's trying to find himself. Lib says that her mom set the fork down on her plate and looked around the table at her four children and said, let me tell you something right now. If any of you need to find yourself, you come see me. I've got a room out in that garden house that I can put you in and lock you up in that room and it will not take you long at all to find yourself in that little room. Now we laugh about that and we kind of see the younger son in this story in that line. He's trying to find himself. The reality is you don't need to find yourself. God is always looking for you and God will find you. And sooner or later, when we come to ourselves and realize that God loves us like the perfect prodigal dad, and we allow ourselves to relax and settle into that love, we realize that we become changed by grace and the hesed, the steadfast love of a God who will never let us go. Tim Keller says about this parable and about the relationship of the love, that even after you are converted by the gospel, your heart will go back to operating on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. You and I, friends, have to deliberately, repeatedly, daily remind ourselves that we are loved by a God who will never let us go. Now, the twist, I think, in, in this story is that last part of the story. Because if you think about the context, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes and there's the shepherd who lost something and found it, and there's rejoicing. There's the woman who lost something and found it, and there's rejoicing. There's the dad who lost a son and found him, and there is rejoicing. This is the first time, here's the teacher's twist, that Jesus adds, not quite, but some of what Paul Harvey would have called the rest of the story. It's the elder son. Remember that context. That when Jesus tells these three stories and when he adds the older brother who is indignant about that which was lost coming back, the Pharisees and the scribes will recon recognize themselves in this story. They realize that they are the older brothers. A lot of folks through the years have explained why Jesus didn't tell whether the older son went into the party or refused to go into the party. 
And I think that's because he intended to leave it open-ended. He wanted the scribes and Pharisees to decide whether they would go into the party and welcome the son who had come back, those tax collectors and sinners that were so attracted to the grace and mercy of God that they were seeing in Jesus. The older brother, the scribes and the Pharisees had to decide whether they would come into the party, whether they would accept the fact that they are loved by God. In 1993, I was serving on the staff here at Peachtree Presbyterian and I was completing my second master's degree. And the, um, the commencement exercises for that graduation were right here in the Peachtree Sanctuary. So I marched through along with everybody else that afternoon, people getting their first master's or a second master's or their doctorate and, and we were seated out in the congregation. The commencement speaker that day was none other than Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop of South Africa, the man who almost single-handedly brought down apartheid. And I remember sitting out in the congregation and, and thinking, okay, here he is, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. This is going to be deep. This is going to be powerful. This is really going to be theological. Chuck, you, you better have your listening ears on and, and be ready to think deep thoughts. And, Tutu climbed up into the, the pulpit at Peachtree, which at the time was, some of you will remember that great big high pulpit that we had at the time. And he, he leaned out over the pulpit and he's got this kind of high nasally voice. And he looked out at the pews in the front at the men and women who were graduating with their Master of Divinity degree. And, getting ready to go out and serve God by serving churches. And he looked at them and leaning out over that pew, he said, that, that pulpit, he said, tell them God loves them so they are lovable. They don't have to become lovable to get God to love them. God loves them so they are lovable. That was about it. Now he went on for about another 15 minutes or so, but, but that was it. And I was sitting out there in the congregation and I thought, I've been robbed. I, I thought this was gonna be deep and powerful and, and theological and that's the best you got? God loves them, so they are lovable. They don't have to become lovable for God to love them. God loves them, so they are lovable. Phew. Well, after the commencement exercises were all over and done with and I found my advisor and thanked him and put everything away. I, I changed clothes. I had to drive down to Hilton Head Island for a Peachtree Presbyterian uh, program staff retreat. And I'm, I'm tooling my way down to Hilton Head and about halfway down there in, in the dark of night, it hit me. You spiritual snob. That is the deepest, most profound theology you've ever heard. God loves me, you. So I am, you are lovable. We don't have to become lovable through a speech to our father or slaving away to our father. 
God's love makes us lovable. Realize, friends, that this recklessly extravagant, profusely giving, very generous, lavishly abundant love of God is yours. Your dad in heaven, that prodigal dad, has given you his love. And all he wants is for you to accept his love and see how that love changes you. I pray that you will do that if you've never done it before, but like the Tim Keller quote, that you will accept that love every day and let that love change you and everything that you do. Happy Father's Day from the prodigal dad to every one of his children. Let's pray together. Abba, Daddy, you who love each of us more than we could ever know. Thank you for loving us, for seeking us out, finding us, for accepting us when we are indignant and forgiving and loving and accepting and welcoming us when we are reckless. I pray for everyone today who has heard this message and ask that you would work through the mystery and majesty of Holy Spirit to open their hearts so that they would accept and be changed by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.